It's Sunday, June 23rd. I'm Mercedes Stevenson and you're listening to the West Block podcast. Here are the top headlines making news on the show this week. Well, I don't know that he's trying to me. Are you trying to get him anything I can do to help Canada? I will be doing Canada is not going to get involved in the ratification process that uh, the American uh, Congress needs to go through. This plan is the most comprehensive environmental platform ever put forward by a political party in Canada. We've spent the last four years doing more for our environment than any other government in Canada's history. We've stood principally to protect those things that matter to not just British Columbians, but in fact all Canadians. The House is now adjourned. Energy and the environment dominated headlines this week. The House of Commons declared a climate emergency and the controversial tanker ban bill for BC's coast passed. Plus, Cabinet approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Not to be outdone, the Conservatives debuted their long-awaited environment plan, which would end the carbon tax and make large emitters pay. Will it be enough to win over Canadians in the fall election? Joining me now is Conservative leader Andrew Scheer. Thank you for coming on the show, Mr. Scheer. Thanks for having me. This is a 60-page plan, lots of information about policies, but not a lot of math. There's no targets in this plan. There's no costing in this plan. Why the Conservatives, who are so focused on the economy and numbers, would put out a plan like this is raising questions. How do you respond to the criticism that you haven't established targets or a cost? Well, I just completely reject those uh, accusations. Uh, this is uh, the components in here that speak to uh, things like tax credits for home renovations to help people uh, make investments in their own home, whether it's high-efficiency furnaces or insulations. Uh, that's costed. The, uh, the, the accelerated capital uh, cost allowance to incentivize investments in green technology and in lowering re reductions is costed as well. And the modeling is based on the parliamentary budget officer indicating that this approach, this this focus on technological innovation uh, can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by uh, by as much as 100 megatons. So this is based on that modeling provided by the parliamentary budget officer. And I would compare this <clears throat> to the Liberal platform in 2015, which was one page with no modeling and no costing at all, just proposing a carbon tax. How do you reject that argument when there is no target in here and there is no cost? Do you have a target of how many megatons a year you'd be looking at to reduce CO2 emissions? What well, would that be? What we've said about our targets is that this plan gives us, gives Canada the best shot at reaching those Paris targets. Is that a hard commitment to the Paris targets? Th th that is what this entire plan is focused on. That absolutely. you will commit to meeting the Paris targets, not is, try to meet them. Well, this is what the, well, on that point, it's very important to recognize that we have a model for the Liberal carbon tax. It's failing. It's not going to meet Paris. Uh, every analysis has shown that we're falling further and further behind. We're actually getting further away from those targets under the Liberal plan. So the choice for Canadians is a plan that is proven not to work or a fresh new approach which is focused on investing in technology, taking the climate fight global, not being restricted just so on what we do So is that a hard commitment though to the Paris targets? That is exactly, yeah, those targets are, those are the targets that Conservatives sign on to. That is what this plan is based on, a goal uh, moving us towards reaching those targets. How do you know you'll meet those targets though when you don't have a target in here for how much you're going to reduce CO2 emissions by? As I just told you, that we have a plan in here. This plan is centered on a number of components based on recognizing that it will be technological improvements that get us there. 
that has been shown. The parliamentary budget officer said over 100 megatons. Under the Liberal carbon tax, we're getting further and further So behind. how do you know, though, if you haven't released what those targets are or how much your plan is going to reduce it by, how do you know you're going to be able to meet those targets? Because it's already been shown to work. Uh, the advancements in technology that have taken place, for example, in the energy sector have seen a 30% reduction in the intensity of emissions released by, uh, by, uh, by the energy sector. That's happened without an accelerator, without government incentives, without a regime that ensures that companies that exceed those emission uh, caps are investing in new R&D and new processes and development. That's happening without uh, the, uh, the green patent credit that we are going to implement, which will act as a magnet for entrepreneurs and innovators from all around the world to come and bring their expertise here to Canada, which will, uh, in, which will unleash a technological revolution. So we know that this is a model that works. It has been evaluated, as I mentioned, by the Parliamentary Budget Officer, who has indicated He's evaluated this, this specific plan. He, the model that he has put out, that, that he pointed to, that said that these types was of Was that without a carbon tax, though? On technological. On the component of the, the 100 megatons, yes. That, that, that is what we can realistically expect the technological side of this plan to achieve. Now, as I mentioned, in addition, there's a whole lot in here about uh, looking at co uh, conservation, recognizing that by uh, increasing our wetlands and conservation efforts, we can sequester carbon with the added benefit of increasing biodiversity, of cleaning our waterways, and by uh, and also helping with flood mitigation. We've got a component here which will ensure that Canada finally stops, and cities in Canada finally stop dumping raw sewage into our rivers, oceans, and lakes. Under this Liberal government, we know the city of Montreal uh, dumped but a whole to, lot of raw sewage. But to go back to your the, plan, in the, in because raw, it, the, it is... Rivers, that's part of this plan. It is your plan. It is your proposal. 100 megatons, you need to drop a lot more than that to meet your Paris targets. The carbon tax, a number of economists, and including prominent conservatives like Preston Manning, have said it's the most economically efficient way to get there. If we're falling behind with it, and you're going to pull it, and you're only talking about 100 megatons, you're not getting anywhere close to those Paris targets, according to the experts. Yeah, for, you know, for people who keep saying that about the carbon tax, it's, you know, it's, it's like in theory, but every time it's been tried, it doesn't work. It hasn't worked in British Columbia. Emissions went up and it stopped being revenue neutral. It's not currently working in Canada at the federal level. So, you know... Well, it's for, just for, been implemented. It'd be awfully hard to evaluate it at the federal level right but, now. But the, but, but the analysis is, even, even in these early stages, people are already recognizing that it's not going to achieve but its current But economists say targets. it's about changing behavior. How are you changing behavior with this plan? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked. There is a component in here called the green... Uh, retro, uh, the Green Renovation Tax Credit, which will incentivize and facilitate Canadians to be able to switch to higher efficiency furnaces, to uh, improve their insulation, to improve their windows. Uh, those are all things that we know that buildings in Canada account for 12% of greenhouse gas well, emissions. And, and the Harper so government ran something very similar, but they ran it as an economic stimulus program because it was so expensive. No, well, it, it accomplishes two things. It does absolutely uh, lead to uh, economic growth. It also leads to greenhouse gas emissions. It was a very popular uh, type of program. This program uh, will be uh, a little more comprehensive and will allow for uh, greater flexibility for Canadians. It's also over a two-year time frame because this is such an urgent issue that we want people to take advantage of this early on. So uh, I believe it'll give, unlike the carbon tax, which will hurt the economy and not reduce emissions, this tax credit to help people renovate their homes will both improve the economy and help reduce emissions. To go back to your big emitters cap, because that seems to be the big focus on how you're reducing actual emissions. We don't know how much it would reduce it by. 
when you look at the provinces, Ontario and Alberta, looking at those caps, would your cap replace the provincial cap that's mm -hmm. in place? Well, obviously there will be an equivalency evaluation, uh, and this cap on large emitters will uh, be accompanied by certification on what types of investments would qualify for the Green Innovation Fund, uh, as well as uh, an enforcement and compliance regime. The nice thing about this oh, plan- Who, by the way, would be doing that enforcement and compliance? Do you have a board? Are there people well, appointed? The, How do you know? Or well, is this a self-reporting No, no, there, there are agencies within government at Environment Canada that make sure that companies live up to their obligations on a whole number of environmental fronts, as well as uh, CRA has a, a function to make sure that uh, in order to qualify for certain types of programs, the, 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 the standards are met. Um, but what's different about this plan than the Liberal plan is that this is not a one-size-fits-all approach on the provinces. This allows for the regional flexibility. This allows for a province to, uh, to, to, to innovate in their own jurisdiction. It also does not take those funds collected uh, on the heavy emitters policy and put it in government coffers. We saw what the Liberals did with that. They gave $12 million to Loblaws so they could replace their fridges. This allows that the, the funds collected there not to go to government coffers, but to invest in R&D and new technological development. But in fairness, your plan reduce those emissions. doesn't estimate how much this is going to cost taxpayers. There's no number on that. Well, as I mentioned, the, the components around the tax credit side uh, and the green patent tax credit, which will uh, allow for a much lower tax rate for revenues that are collected on new uh, developments of technology. Uh, that is costed. That is around $2.5 billion that will be left in the economy, that will be left in uh, the private sector so that there can be increased competition and companies around the world recognizing that if they develop a new product that helps lower emissions in one jurisdiction or Canada, they get a better rate in Canada, they'll come and make those investments in Canada. Are you worried that putting this much of the weight on the big emitters could undermine Canada's international competitiveness? Because there are companies operating in other countries that don't have those kinds of emission standards. Uh, and that is a great point, and that is a key pillar of this plan, and that is what we're calling taking the climate flight global. There are companies that do have operations in Canada and in countries like China without those standards. Aluminum is a great example of that. Aluminum in Canada can be produced at a fraction of the emissions that are uh, emitted in China. So this plan actually recognizes those types of companies and gives them an incentive to expand or, or bring that production to Canada rather than see it grow in countries like China. At the end of the day, if there are increased CO2 emissions in other countries, we don't do the world any favors. Molecules of CO2 don't have passports. They, they, they don't worry about borders. So let's realize that if we bring in a carbon tax and we chase away jobs and investment only to see that pop up in other countries, we're not doing the planet a favor. What, one last question. What led to the change of heart here? in saying that climate change is in fact human-made? Uh, there's never been a cha uh, change of heart. We've always recognized that climate change is happening and that human beings have an impact on our environment. That is uh, a very uh, self-evident statement and one that conservatives have always uh, appreciated. And when you look at the conservative record on environmental issues, it is uh, Brian Mulroney who was the, the greenest prime minister. It was uh, uh, John Diefenbaker who brought in Environmental Awareness Week. It was Johnny McDonald who created our first national parks. It was the previous conservative government that saw an actual reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. Andrew Shear, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. The Trans Mountain Pipeline has the green light. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that shovels will be in the ground this year, but he wouldn't commit to a date for that. While some pop the champagne, others are up in arms, including B.C. Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, who holds the balance of power in that province. Mr. Weaver, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. 
What a pleasure uh, being on your show. Thank you. The federal government approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project this week. You've said that you will use every available tool to stop the pipeline. So what's your next step to try to prevent shovels from going in the ground? So in our confidence and supply agreement, as you pointed out, with the BCNDP, it does indeed say that every tool in the toolbox will be used. Now, uh, as this is a collaborative approach to governance on this particular file, uh, what we've been doing right now is discussing with the BCNDP collectively what other steps are available. Uh, we continue to support uh, the BCNDP in their move to bring the uh, test case to the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, sadly, that could have happened right away if the federal government had actually done what the British Columbia government had hoped they would is go right away to the Supreme Court instead of this initial case. So we support that. We know that there are indigenous uh, um, communities that are going to continue to uh, fight and, and, as a, and as there are other issues that have been brought to our attention. Uh, the main concern here we have of course is that the interests of British Columbians are protected and in addition that truth in discourse publicly nationally is actually there. There's been far too much political spin, far too little evidence in, in terms of informing the decision making and far too much decisions already made seek evidence to justify after the fact involved in what's been going on here with the Trans Mountain. In terms of Premier Horgan, he said that Ottawa appears to be going ahead with this. The BC Court of Appeals has said that the federal government has jurisdiction. I know there's still court cases, but if the Premier right. is willing to allow this pipeline to be ultimately built, are you willing to pull your support from him over that issue? So the Premier has been very clear he will continue to stand up for British Columbians' coastal interests. We continue to support in that regard. The, the three uh, ministers who are most active on this particular file are the Premier, uh, Minister Eby, uh, Attorney General, and Minister Heyman, the Environment Minister. The three ministers and our uh, collective caucus have met numerous times on this topic. We're on the same page. We collectively believe that it is not in British Columbia's interests to put, uh, take all the risk. And frankly, we believe it is not in Canada's interests to be investing multiple billions of dollars on the technology of the last century, uh, trying to uh, produce a pipeline to deliver a substance to a market that doesn't exist. Uh, we know that market doesn't exist because right now, this year, there has only been one tanker, only one tanker that has left the uh, Westbridge Terminal for Asia. Uh, and this is supposed to have one a day, and we've had one so far this year. The reason why, of course, is that Trans Mountain, when they initially put forward the project to the NE did so under the assumption of an oil price over $100 a barrel and with the expectation that the market was going to be the California market because what was happening is supply was being sought for those refineries. Uh, we've had a revolution in shale uh, technology and the discovery of the back and fields and the substantive uh, cheap oil coming out has really muted the uh, ability of both Alaska crude as well as British Columbia heavy oil to actually find market, not only in America, but it's very low value value product because of its high sulfur content, because it's, it has to be upgraded so much, and it's expensive to get to wherever it needs to be. So we believe this is fiscally reckless, and not only that, it's, it's um, Mr. Trudeau has, has continued to try to spin this as somehow good for clean energy. I mean, it, it's ironic that he would have a climate emergency uh, announcement the day before approving a pipeline. In fact, that headline by itself made the headline of the Beaverton, but it's actually what happened. That shows how outrageous it is. But there are business analysis that show that we're not ready to get off of fossil fuels and that there is still demand. And the Alberta market has had a problem with trying to get the oil out. And it's that problem of moving oil that's still happening. So does that mean that you'd prefer to move it another way, by rail instead of by pipeline? 
So that's incorrect. The argument there is a fallacy. That is the foundation of the rhetoric that has been put out. Alberta claims it needs its, its product to get to Tide. Well, what we have to do is ask the question, why is it that the export of diluted bitumen out of Burnaby Terminal has collapsed in recent years? And it's collapsed. Uh, it's been going on for quite some time. It's be collapsed because the market doesn't exist. And the market that did exist, which was the California market, is gone because of the back and shales. There's a reason why Kinder Morgan bailed from this project. They bailed from it because they saw the writing on the wall, the market for diluted bitumen. It is not oil. Let's be very clear. Well, in fairness, they said they weren't confident the pipeline was going to be approved. Well, I mean, that is, that's a very good story. I, and I, all I can say is I'm, I, I have a lot of respect for the uh, senior management of Kinder Morgan who were able to protect shareholder value and get the government to, to basically uh, fall across the, the finish line uh, in, a, in a, frankly, incompetent manner to bail them out of a bad investment. That's really what's at stake here. And the federal government uh, is to claim that somehow we're going to have clean energy being supported here actually assumes that we're going to make money on this. I don't see how we can because the price for Alaska, for Alberta oil at 25 bucks, a little lower than the, than the say the, the uh, regular crude. Uh, if, if there were such a market of it today, why is it that we're not shipping any of it to Asia other than one tanker all of this year? That's because there isn't a market. And part of that reason is because high sulfur uh, bunker fuels are being phased out in the marine shipping industry as we move. It's not because of a lack of pipelines. No, there's no, we have an existing pipeline. We have an existing pipeline for which product, if there were a market for high value product, would have been used. If someone was willing to pay $50, $60 a barrel for Alberta Michigan, today they could place an order and they could deliver into that from the, Alberta, the Westbridge terminal. That could happen today, but it hasn't happened. There has been one such order from China. It is utter nonsense and fiscal recklessness to believe that somehow this investment is going to get, bring money to, to, be, to, to Canada. It's all about political games as Trudeau tried to play horse trading with Miss Notley in order to get carbon pricing and with Miss Clark in order to get Site C and LNG Canada approved. You know, this is, this is shocking, actually. It's what breeds cynicism in the Canadian public about our political discourse. And if we had an honest discussion, we would actually recognize that it is not economically uh, viable today. And you don't have to believe me. Talk to David Anderson, the former Minister of Department of Fisheries and Oceans, who essentially said as much in a recent editorial here in the Times column. There are people who oppose the project and they say they're planning civil disobedience, like chaining themselves to fences and pipelines. Yes. Do you endorse that as a way to stop the pipeline? We, as a... As a political party, I understand that each individual citizen has a responsibility that they wish to abide by. Uh, as a political party, you will not see me standing up and, 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 and condoning nor participating in civil de disobedience. I don't believe, as a, as a lawmaker, it behooves me as a, such a person to actually break said law. However, I understand that in times of, 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 of strife, people find different ways uh, of expressing themselves. 
themselves. I'm very worried about how this is going to end up. I am very worried because people have not been heard, because the rhetoric that has been sold to Canadians is a rhetoric that doesn't hold up to scrutiny, and people are not stupid. You know, had we had a, a fair and open and honest discussion that the reason why this pipeline is being built is solely because we're worried about Alberta, we, we, and, and we're trying to appease Albertans and polit the politics in Alberta, maybe that's one thing. But to be told that there's this great market for it, to be told that we need it to invest in clean energy, to be told that somehow this is good for the Canadian economy, it's all nonsense. Look, Statoil, uh, Total, uh, Shell, BP, numerous multinationals have pulled out of the Alberta oil sands already. They've divested themselves from that, not because they don't need oil, but because it is some of the most expensive and, and frankly, dirtiest oil on the planet. We're not talking about shipping Alberta crude. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about shipping uh, back in shale oil. We are talking about shipping diluted bitumen, a low-value product, high sulfur contact that needs substantial upgrading. And if we really cared about the economy and jobs here in the province, what we would be doing is we'd be doing what Elizabeth May, our federal leader, has pointed out, is we should be refining locally. Because there is a domestic market for local refined products that we could meet, and we're not. And that is a shame, and that's what we should be focusing on. Because race for the bottom economics, to continue to do what we've been doing for decades and think we're going to get somehow a different result is not going to work out. Mr. Lougheed in Alberta saw the future. He recognized that there were wealthy times, and he created the Alberta Heritage Fund, which was a legacy that he left for Albertans that was squandered by irresponsible responsible conservative management of that province in the years that followed. To now somehow think that we're going to continue down that path to being wealth and prosperity, uh, I can imagine Mr. Lawhey turning over in his grave as he had set Alberta up to position themselves for tomorrow and now they're trying to scramble to catch up when they could have been in a position leading the growth of our economy rather than chasing the kind of economy of the early 20th century. What are we going to start talking about now? We're going to talk about you know coal mines again? Li literally the rest of the world is moving on, and, it, and I think Canada behooves us to do so as well. Well, there have been some groups online discussing destroying infrastructure, actually attacking the pipeline, taking this to the level of damaging that infrastructure and even possibly violence. Is that something that you're concerned about, and what would you say to people who are considering taking those actions? I, I'm very concerned uh, about this. Uh, I, I, of course, I, I don't condone any of this. Uh, my colleagues, we don't condone this. But we understand the level of frustration that exists in British Columbia in particular for people. I mean, look. I, partic I can show you my own frustration. I participated as an intervener. My office and I spent hundreds upon hundreds of hours in the initial intervention process. We sp uh, scanned all 10,000 pages, submitted hundreds upon hundreds of questions, waited for answers, and got none. So much so that a simple example that I'll give you here was dismissed as not being important. The example was this. I asked simply that if a more credible uh, oil spill response could be put forward in light of the fact that the entire submission to the NEB was predicated on the existence of 20 hours of sunlight. Well, I can tell you there's no latitude south of Tuktoyaktuk that gets 20 hours of sunlight on any day of the year, any year, any year in the, in the century. That's a problem. So I simply asked the question, could we please have more realistic scenarios with your oil spill response done when we actually have realistic amounts of daylight available? Numbers change when you actually have real assumptions instead of fake assumptions. 
I was told, no, the NEB have enough on which to raise a decision. That comment was never addressed once. Yet that is a foundation. If, if, if I had a term paper submitted to me while I was a student uh, uni at university from an undergraduate student doing an oil spill response uh, on, uh, suggesting that this was good, and I said to them, well, there's no, there's no, there's no your, your assumption of 20 hours of sunlight is, is, is not, doesn't hold up, they would probably not pass that assignment. Yet somehow, national decisions on the, on the scale of billions upon billions of dollars are being made when information like that is on which it is based. It's shocking. It's scandalous. And frankly, I think Canadians deserve better. And so I understand why people are frustrated. Oh, I very much understand. I'm frustrated. I don't condone the, the, the actions that you says might, might occur. But, 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 you know, it's not as if people have not been warning that, that, that people are frustrated out in this province. I think in the short term, and you can see that from the recent ECOS polls, when you see that the federal Green Party in British Columbia is now polling above the federal Liberals and almost twice what the federal NDP are polling in this province of British Columbia. That really is a testament to how concerned people are here about the nonsense that we've been sold as a bill of goods in this province. But the most recent poll showed that 60% of British Columbians support Trans Mountain. So a, a lot of the, 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 it depends on the question. So again, um, if you ask the question, where is the support for Trans Mountain? You will find in British Columbia that it is less of a concern for people in the interior of British Columbia. I'm, I say that generally. Obviously, the Camus nations are very concerned. They've, they've spoken strongly against it. But there are others, you know, more generally who are less concerned because it doesn't affect their backyard. You come to the city of Vancouver. The a city that's trying to brand itself as the greenest city in the world by 2020, and you try to turn it into one of the largest exporters of heavy oil in a precarious kind of coastal environment where they have to go through the, through the uh, Ironworkers Bridge every day and the entire harbor must shut down as these tankers leave and enter. You, you, you know, there's profound concern there. So if the Liberals think they're going to win seats on Vancouver Island or in Greater Vancouver, yeah, they've got something coming to them. If they, I, I would suspect, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were wiped out of Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a substantive increase in the number of federal Greens. And the ECOS poll released yesterday or the day before shows 24% polling in, in, in the province of British Columbia by the federal Greens, and the federal Liberals only 22%, and the BCNDP in the low teens. Remarkable numbers, and that's a direct consequence of, 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 of the British Columbians witnessing the, the hypocritical behavior of our federal politicians. What do you say to people who say the federal government has to balance jobs in Alberta and the environment in BC? 80,000 jobs lost, Alberta saying they're dying because they can't get the energy out, and that the federal government is trying to strike a balance here. It's not about balancing out. Look, I, I would suggest that Mr. Trudeau needs to go back and read the Lorax. It's a very simple kid's book that talks about balancing in the environment and the economy. Uh, it's not as simple as that. Mr. Trudeau has... A, you, you balance the environment and the economy by recognizing that you don't have a strong economy without a strong environment. Mr. Kenny continuing to think that somehow building a pipeline is going to create a market. It's, it's, it's outrageous. I mean... What free market exists where you build something and it will come? Nobody does that. This is one of the reasons, probably the substantive reason why Kinder Morgan walked. There is no market right now for high sulfur-laden diluted bitumen. That's the reason why it's trading at $25 a barrel. But then why is there a glut? Because study after study in Alberta has said that the problem is with being able to get the oil out. Not a lack of demand, but a lack of being able to supply it. Well, uh, the counter to that, I mean, you can quote industry study after industry study and rhetoric after rhetoric who will say that. And, but what you're not quoting is study after study, which are saying the exact opposite. And I'll give you the direct numbers. 
One tanker, one tanker has left Vancouver for China this year. One. But the price is 25 bucks. If there was such a market, there is no reason why today they could not be shipping already with the existing pipeline to Asian markets. They're not because there isn't a market. That is the problem. And the refinery in, in Burnaby is not getting the product it needs to refine. That pipeline is under, underused in terms of, and, it's, and they're dumping into the, into the Sumus market um, in, in the US. This, this is the problem. There is no mysterious Chinese market. It's just, it's, a, it's literally smoke and mirrors. So, so uh, this is the problem we're having, is you're trying to squeeze water from a stone, and when it doesn't happen, rather than walking away, you twist squeeze harder. It's like watching the Nortel stock drop from over $100 to 70 and thinking, great deal, I'll buy twice as much, and then watching it go into $20 and buying more, and then watching it at $2 and thinking you have a hell of a deal, and then wondering why you're bankrupt when you're stuck with a bunch of paper that you doubled down on, throwing good money after bad, and you end up with nothing. And that's exactly the path we're heading on now. Now, I recognize that Alberta has historically got an oil economy. Now is the time they, now is a time that they should be diversifying because the reality is the world is decarbonizing. Whether Alberta likes it or not, the rest of the world is. You can go kicking and screaming and try to hang on to the 20th century, or you can be left behind. I would like Alberta to be leaders in innovation in the new economy. I wish they were, because I know they got the talent and the people there to do that. And one of the ways you do that is by not chasing the past, by fo focusing on the future. It is, frankly, too late for arguments like, oh, we need this, uh, we need this to invest in clean energy. Those arguments may have been valuable at the time of Peter Lougheed. They may have been uh, legitimate and compelling arguments in the early 1990s. They are not now. We're at 20, almost 2019. The IPCC has quite clearly pointed out that we are going to blow through the two degrees and one degrees target very soon if we don't get our act together in the next decade. Now, I think that it is irresponsible for us to not uh, follow the leadership that particularly the youth of today who will have to inherit this mess have to, uh, uh, are, are crying out for. We have to wrap it up there, Mr. Weaver. Thank you very much for joining us. What a pleasure uh, being on your show. Thank you. A politics-packed week from Justin Trudeau's visit with Donald Trump in Washington to MPs heading back home for the summer and a stunning cabinet shuffle in Ontario as the Ford government tries to reset the agenda. Lots to talk about. Joining me now for that is Toronto Star Bureau Chief Susan Delacourt and, of course, our own chief political correspondent, David Aiken. So it's hard to do better than Donald Trump saying he is willing to do anything for Canada. He will represent us strongly in the meeting that he has with the president of China. There was no Twitter or Eruptions after we left. Uh, is this a win, Susan? Yeah, definitely. I think I was watching various um, people who know more about Canada-U.S. relations than I do yesterday saying this is proof that, you know, another leader might have taken last June's outburst to be a sign of permanent bad relations. Um, certainly, if you'd asked me a year ago if Trump and Trudeau would have been having that encounter they had yesterday, and while Trudeau didn't look comfortable, I think you do have to give him points for not overreacting last summer when he could have, and, and big points to, it's not mentioned very often, to David McNaughton, the ambassador down there, who does seem to have been managing this 
back to a place where you can get the President of the United States talking about somebody other than himself <laughs> <laughs> and saying that he was willing to do things for his friend Justin Trudeau. So uh, there are a lot of leaders in the world who would like Trump to do that, I think. Um, but uh, I do think that was a win yesterday. A huge amount of work, as Susan says, that's gone on behind the scenes at all levels of the embassy. Mm -hmm. I was talking to some people who work there in the scramble to try to get this already, even though something like this doesn't happen overnight. At the end of the day, though, we have Donald Trump on side for China. That could be very helpful. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to NAFTA, it's not up to him. What kind of progress has there been on the congressional right. and, front? And, and for me, that was, I think, the more important for the Canadian economy part of the trip. We know that Trump is on board with NAFTA, COSMA, USMCA, whatever you want to call it. But that meeting with Pelosi, I was really sort of watching to see how that was going. And it still seems like, you know, Nancy Pelosi is going to do what the Democrats want to do. And she's really not responding to many foreign leaders. I mean, she still has problems with the new NAFTA, and Democrats are going to have to work that through. So we'll see. There's going to have to be more work by Ambassador McNaughton. I'm sure he knows that, and uh, everybody else to, to sort of push that through. The other interesting thing, uh, as well, that I'm, I'm watching with the Trudeau Trump relationship is. Um, Trudeau and Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, and other progressive G20 leaders have been sort of working together behind the scenes in advance of next week's G20 meeting to Trump-proof next year's G20, next year's <laughs> G7, and G20 next year is in Saudi Arabia. So in an election in the United States, the G20 goes to the Saudis, the G7 comes to America. And a lot of the progressive work and work to sort of hem in China, which is going to be a big focus next week, you know, Trudeau is playing... A very interesting game. He needs Trump on board, but we don't want Trump being too much taking the lead. Other nations have to. I think that's going to be a really fascinating thing to watch uh, next week. Well, and in this case, he has to rely on Donald Trump to deliver the message, but he has his own agenda too, and that's the trade war that he has with China. How top of agenda do you really think Canada is going to be in that meeting for Donald Trump? I have heard that uh, Trump and Trudeau, this new warmth between them, is because Trump feels some sympathy or a solidarity with Trudeau on China is driving us crazy. They are the, <laughs> we are the China is driving us crazy club. And I think, I think it's sincere in as much as Trump can be sincere that, that he does have some sympathy for Canada in this. Whether Donald Trump will always do what's best for Donald Trump, but I, I, <laughs> I'll maybe live to regret it, but I take him as at his word. And I actually, We've been hearing that Trump, Trump and Trudeau have been talking a lot on the phone lately. Lots of calls, yeah. Um, they've been going back and forth, and I, I'm told the alliance is China. So and, I, it, it wouldn't surprise me if he does. And this is one of those issues, China, that is proving to Trump perhaps the value of a multilateral approach. Because Trump, at the other G20s, I've been to there, and, and he's off in one corner. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't, we saw the G7. He doesn't want to be part of the team. He wants to go his own way. But now, next week, he's going to find out that everybody is on side with him about China. And look how the team can work here, Donald. And then that's going to be a learning instance for him, I hope. When it, when it comes to teamwork, most Canadian MPs on side, even if they criticize that Kuzma deal, USMCA, NAFTA 2.0, um, possible we'll see MPs come back this summer to ratify that. We don't know yet. But formally, the legislature is wrapped up. We theoretically won't see them again until after the election, whoever is reelected and might be in charge in that government. Justin Trudeau came in with a big legislative agenda. How did he do in terms of making progress on that, Susan? What did he deliver and what didn't come through? I would say what didn't come through, I'll start on a sort of a, a, a 
down note is what didn't come through was the hope, the promise, the sunny ways. I think they got hit by the, the election of Donald Trump, and it seemed to knock them off their sunny ways path. Mm -hmm. um, ever since Trump was elected, uh, and then you can almost do it year by year. There was Trump's election, knocked them off course, then Trudeau's own self-inflicted wound, the India trip, and then the SNC-Lavalin thing. Those three things knocked this government from proactive to defensive and um, made them do much of their stuff, measuring how well they were doing by how well they were reacting to, to various um, <clears throat> unexpected incidents. So I would say what what they didn't do is deliver in a in a big way and it to accompany all those that grand promise they they came in with four years ago I'll do the what did they one of the big things they delivered on that they campaigned on was legalizing cannabis I mean that really is a, a big, big change one. and that's the, a big the one Canada child benefit they Canada child benefit absolutely lifting so there's a people out of poverty couple of things that they can go look at what we did and we've seen them as particularly the Canada child benefit and yes there are a lot more Canadians with jobs than there were four years ago so those are things they're they're highlighting and going to but what you touched on about tone, sunny ways, electoral reform absolutely was a big promise. It was an unequivocal, unambiguous promise and a complete and utter failure. And that goes with that we're going to do politics differently. And I know um, Nader Smith, for example, was on a podcast I was recently listening to saying this whole idea of the center's not going to have control, but we haven't done that yet. The center's got a ton of control, and, and that's an speaking issue. Speaking of control or lock thereof, Doug Ford's <laughs> office, <laughs> yeah. uh, which has been in a bit of chaos this week. Uh, Finance Minister shuffled out after a year, almost unheard of, to no portfolio. Uh, chief of Staff embattled, not well liked, news that he'd appointed uh, one of his son's friends and his cousin's, his wife's cousin, sorry, yeah. uh, to, to rules with major salaries overseas, struggling to try to reassert control. Does this hurt or help the Liberals heading into the election? I was asking my Queen's Park colleague uh, at the end of this week uh, how many rings are in that circus because every day is a new <laughs> Doug Ford eruption and certainly it's making Liberals happy. I'm told MPs who've been going door to door, uh, Liberal MPs in the past month, say that one MP told me it's coming up at 7 out of 10 doors, that, um, that Doug Ford is uh, the best friend that the federal Liberals have now up to the election. And speaking of the Ford legacy, we have just a few seconds left, but Renata Ford, Rob Ford's widow, now running for the People's Party of Canada. Yeah, this is just, uh, this is the three-ring circus or four-ring <laughs> circus. Renata Ford, don't forget, has is in the middle of a big family feud with Doug Ford, and it's Doug Ford's riding that Renata Ford is going to run in feb federally. So it's a big <laughs> sopra. This is Bernier's party, the People's Party of Canada. Folks, it'll be funny for a few minutes, but the Liberal incumbent there is the science Minister Kirstie Duncan, uh, she's going to win that riding and uh, hold me to it in six months from now. Well, we're certainly going to keep a close eye on it. Thank you both for joining us, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please check us out online at thewestblock.ca. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.